This is Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the Lord God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is the word of the Lord. Go ahead and have a seat. Now my friend Matt had been asking me to drive his car for over a year. He had a Jaguar F-Type convertible. If you know, you know. I didn't know, so I kept putting it off. And he kept saying, it's so much fun, you just have to drive it. It's so much fun, you just have to drive it. And I was like, yeah, 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 it's a car. But finally, one Saturday morning, he got me. Simon, my son, and I went over to drop something off at Matt's house, and there it was in the driveway. Matt was like, what do you have to do today? I'm like, I'm just running errands with Simon. He's like, take the Jag. Okay, traded in the Highlander for the Jag. And uh, got in the car, and the first thing I noticed was the 100 different micro adjustments in the seating. Some of you guys know what I'm talking about. Others want to know. Maybe you'll have a chance someday. And uh, as I we're adjusting it all, you know, it's like these cushions come up around your hips, apparently to hold you in place. So, you know, we get out of the neighborhood, we cross the Ross Island Bridge, we're heading out of Southeast Portland where Matt lived, we go across Ross Island Bridge, and then finally, I mean, it was kind of fun, it was kind of peppy, but then finally we get onto I-5 South heading up towards the Twilliger Curves. And I think to myself, I don't think I said anything out loud, but I thought, now is when I get to open this baby up. So, we pull onto the freeway, and the first thing I noticed was the rumble. There's this beautiful sound of power. When you accelerate that, you feel it behind you. And we pull out and uh, as I start to accelerate, I realize I'm going uphill and these other cars are, it felt like they were going about five miles per hour. And uh, as, I, as I get going, I'm realizing even uphill, I have unlimited power at my disposal. Every time I lean on the gas pedal, I get this rumble and this adrenaline hit that was absolutely unbelievable. And I was thinking to myself at that moment, this is what Matt has been talking about. And then as I cornered, you know, you glide into the corner, accelerate out, I knew that. And as I'm cornering, I'm feeling, oh, that's what the hip supports are for. So as I'm feeling these corners, trying to get around all these extremely slow cars, I look over at Simon, who's literally holding on with both hands <laughs> in two different places. And I thought he'd be excited, like phone out, you know, let's get a reel with dad. But instead it was like, 
gripped with fear. I think his cheeks were actually being pulled back by the G-force. And he was probably thinking, who is this madman driving the car? Certainly not the guy that taught me to drive so many years ago. Now, that experience could be summed up in one word, power. And there's different kinds of power. Maybe yours isn't the car and the horsepower. Maybe your power that you've experienced is intellectual power. The ability to be in a room or in a conversation and know more than the other person. Even to be in a classroom and to realize that you know more than the teacher. That's a form of power. There's social power. The ability to influence others to do what you want. To lead people into action. There's economic power. The power to be able to buy whatever you want. There's power in beauty and allure. The ability to dress a certain way, accentuate your body in a certain way that you can walk down the street or walk into a room and turn heads. That kind of command of attention is power. There's athletic power, the ability to turn on your game whenever you want. I've always wanted that power. <laughs> Trey has that power. But Paul, when he prays for the church in Ephesus, he's praying for them to know God's power. But the question is, what kind of power? How does this power work? And we're gonna get there in one minute, but we have a few stops along the way. And first, I just wanna frame up where we've been and where we're going. We're in a series called Immeasurably More. We're looking at this letter that Paul wrote in the first century from prison. The apostle Paul is in prison for preaching the good news about Jesus. He's writing to this group of people that he knows, although it's been a while, he's heard about their faith and he's writing them a letter of encouragement. These believers are in the city of Ephesus. If you remember, this is a port city, a city of commerce. This is a place where some, even um, archeology span shows us that there were some lavish homes and extreme wealth. But then on the other hand, you had those on the margins and you had the poor as well. And like any Roman city, there were slaves and they were free. It was multicultural, it was a place of ideas. People would come in and out of this port, not only to bring commerce, but also new philosophies new religions of the world. And the people in Ephesus were especially known for their fascination with the occult. And even in Acts chapter 19, where we're first introduced to the people in Ephesus, when there's a full-on revival and people are repenting of their allegiance to other gods, they bring these scrolls and idols from their occult practices and burn them as a sign of breaking off their allegiance to these former gods and goddesses and committing to Jesus Christ as Lord. But the people are known for being obsessed with spiritual power. This is where the temple of Artemis was, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. People came from all over to worship at this temple. It's interesting, even the way the city was laid out, when you came into the port and came up out off a boat in the port, you would go, the first thing you would hit was this grand temple. The city architecture and planning was all centered around the worship of this goddess Artemis. There were other temples there were temples to the divine Julius Caesar. Remember in the Roman world, they actually venerated the emperor as God. There were even uh, memorials to other Roman emperors. And right in the midst of that environment, a church of Jesus Christ is born. People coming together, growing, thriving. It was so powerful that it was disrupting the sale of idols to these false gods. So Paul is writing them 
to remind them that all history has come to its climax in Jesus of Nazareth, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and this new multi-ethnic family called the church. The purpose of the letter is to explain God's plan from eternity past to unite Jew, Gentile, slave-free, male, female, and to bring everything in heaven and earth under the unity of Jesus Christ. And last week, Hakim skillfully unpacked the rich theology of what God has done for us in Christ. And in light of that, now Paul turns to pray. This theology burdens him to pray for transformation in his friends' lives. So Paul prays. There's a clear outline. This is one run-on sentence, by the way. All whatever, you know, eight verses is one long sentence, but it's beautifully outlined. There's some, there's themes in there that we're gonna just lift out that will provide our structure for today. So here's where we're going. Paul is praying that they will know God better, know their true hope, know his inheritance, and know their power in Christ. And then we're gonna end today with a story to illustrate all of this. So first, Paul begins, if you have your Bible, open it and again and look at verse 16. He, he begins this prayer where prayer often starts. He begins with gratitude. He says, I have not stopped giving thanks for you. Paul gives thanks for them. And then before you know it, he's praying for them. But he begins with gratitude. And recently I was talking to some other church leaders that were here during our Holy Spirit conference. And it was interesting hearing their perspective of what God is doing in this moment in the Bridgetown family. And what they were saying was, they were saying, man, what we see that God's doing in the Bridgetown family is he's stirring up hunger. There's just incredible hunger. The way that the prayer room filled up this winter, the way that um, you have showed up for uh, the Holy Spirit Conference, they said, man, we just see that what's happening in the midst of your community is hunger. And in that moment, as I was hearing these other leaders talking about you, what was welling up in me was deep, deep gratitude. I mean, what an amazing thing. The, the hunger and the desperation, what God is stirring up in our midst as a family in this season is not of man, it's of God. It's such a beautiful thing. It's not normal that in a secular post-Christian city in the West like Portland, that you would be here on a Sunday morning and not out to brunch having a beer mosa. This is, this is a beautiful season that we're in. And as one of your leaders, the response that I have is deep, deep gratitude. So we wanna pay close attention to how Paul prays. It's incredible to think that he's in prison. He's already asked in other places for, would you pray for his release? That hasn't happened. But still in the midst of that, he prays these expansive prayers for the church in Ephesus. The way he prays shakes me out of my limited perspective. This incredible, despite his circumstances, this incredible focus on others. And he's so hopeful. He prays these like King Jesus-centered, big picture, end game-oriented prayers. So Paul gives thanks for them, and then he begins praying for them to know these things. The first one is, verse 17, I keep asking that you would know 
him better. Paul prays that they will know God better, to know God more. He's praying that they would have firsthand experience, what we would call encounter, to know God more intimately, deeper than they have known anything or anyone else. And notice the way that Paul prays in this first line. If you're taking notes, write this down. If you're not taking notes, write this down. First, Paul prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a massive shift for any Jewish person. Paul is trained rabbinically, and all of his life, he has been taught and practiced praying to the God of Israel or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But now he prays to the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a huge shift. This is new revelation and understanding that's been given to Paul. And he's asking for more of this kind of insight and knowledge for those in Ephesus. Secondly, Paul prays from a deeply Trinitarian perspective. This is also a major shift for a Jew. Even early Christians really wrestled with this. Now, although this is clearly in the Old Testament, if you're looking for it, this is something that we need probably today, like Paul, to have our minds and our thoughts refreshed. Remember this, our God is not a single person God like Zeus or Allah. Our God is one God in three persons. This, uh, we'll put this slide up. This is really helpful. We've shown this before. We probably need this every week. I literally put this on the wall in my office to keep reminding me that our God is Father, Son, and Spirit. A perfect relational community of never-ending love, honor, and appreciation. A self-giving love, totally independent and lacking nothing. And what's amazing is we are in Christ, meaning we are in the middle of this relationship. You are at the center of this divine, never-ending circle of love. If you could put that on one more time. So this is to depict Father, Son, and Spirit together at the table. And the open space in the middle is for you. Rublev, when he created this icon hundreds of years ago, his intention was that even as you walked up to this piece of art, you would imagine yourself at the table. You are at the center of this community, Father, Son, and Spirit. Thirdly, Paul prays for them for the activity of the Spirit in them. Now notice, when he prays for them for the spirit of wisdom and revelation, he's not asking that they would receive the spirit. He said already in chapter one, verse 13, that they've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. What he's asking for here is a work of the spirit in revelation and understanding. Now, the word revelation in Greek is apocalypsis. I'm not gonna make you say it, but just look at it for a minute. That's beautiful, apocalypsis. Some of you wanna say it, don't. Only I can. Just kidding. Apocalypsis means opening up, like the opening of a door or a curtain or the lifting of a cover off of a box. Paul is asking that God would pull back the curtain so that they could know in a new, deeper way the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, that they would know more fully. Now, friends, this is what we want. 
I believe that at the deepest center of us as Jesus followers, as a family in this moment, we want to know more of Jesus. I want to be overwhelmed again and again and go to deeper levels of understanding his goodness, his love, his majesty. I want to know the Father as Jesus knows the Father in the circle of the relationship with the Father, the Son, the Spirit, and the Trinity. We want to know God more. Now, if you can resonate with that to some degree, I wanna give just a super couple, simple practical steps on that. How can we know God more? One, be holy. Isn't it interesting, Paul, at the very beginning of this letter, he knows there's people with deep sinful patterns and problems in the church in Ephesus, and he begins by calling them holy ones, saints, God's holy people. That's who you are in Christ, and now you and I are called to live up to it. And you know, I'll never forget about seven years ago, our leadership, our elders um, came to this point where we wanna integrate what we believe about the Holy Spirit and our practices. We had charismatic theology, but not charismatic practices. So what does this look like to, to have an integration? And we went on this journey. Many of you have been with us. One of the best journeys we've been on as a church for me personally, and I know for Jenny and I. And, and I remember um, having this aha moment where we were talking about, okay, Holy Spirit, who are you? What do you have for us? What's next? And I remember this just clear moment of realizing the Holy Spirit wants us to be holy. We don't have to go that much further. Like it's in his name, Holy Spirit. Think about it, like getting to know a new friend. You, you wanna know what they like, what they don't like. As you get to know the Holy Spirit, you realize that what he likes is holiness, meaning saying no to and turning away from sin and compromise. The, the, the way that the Bible talks about it is being set apart, holy to God. So number one, if you want to know God more, I would just encourage you, is there anything in your life, and maybe it's not even like evil, maybe it is outright evil. If it is, repent, turn away, get rid of it. Maybe we need to have a you know, scroll burning session or whatever, like yes, but also are there even neutral things in your life that are just holding you back and holding you down? Like get rid of that, it's worth it. Secondly, how can you know God more? First of all, I would just say protect time with God. Have you, have you ever been with somebody, maybe hanging out with a friend or out to coffee or even perhaps on a date and you're like, the conversation's going good and there's been something that you're like, okay, there's something deep in me that I want to bring out and share with this person. And you're like, I think I'm there. I think I, I wanna share this. And then you look up and they're scrolling on their phone. They got a message that's seemingly, you know, life altering importance. And how does that feel in that moment? Not that great. Probably whatever was bubbling up just got pressed back down for another year, right? Now think about, your time with God. If you're setting aside even five minutes to be alone with God, how can you protect that time? How can you make sure that your phone is like in another room or you're outside and the phone's locked inside? Like how can you give God your best even for a moment? I would just challenge you, if you wanna know God better, try as an experiment to give God the best part of your day. Whenever that is for you, even start with five minutes and give him that time and then protect that time. 
like you would on a date with someone special. And then thirdly, how can you know God better? Ask him. Ask to know God better. Ask to know more of his love. Isn't it interesting? Paul is asking on behalf of the church in Ephesus. So why don't you ask for yourself? Do you want this? Do you want more? Do you want to know God better? Then let this prayer create hunger in you. Paul prays that the Ephesians would know God better. And then verse 18, he prays that the eyes of their heart would be open to know their hope, to know their true hope. Now in the Bible, the heart is the center of our personhood. It's the seat of emotions, the seat of intellect, the place where we think, the center of volition, where we make decisions. And Paul is praying that God would get a hold of the center of their being to know their true hope in Christ. But you have to ask, well, what is that hope? What specifically is he praying for them? Is it that they would set their hope on going to heaven when they die? That they might escape all the pagan idol worship all around them, escape the decaying planet, their, their, their disease and death, and that they might escape to heaven? Is that it? Actually, The hope of the scriptures that Paul is intimately acquainted with isn't to escape to heaven, but to see heaven come to earth. This is what Jesus calls the renewal of all things on earth. Isaiah in the Old Testament talks about the new heavens and new earth. Peter in the New Testament also calls the same thing, this new heavens and new earth, this hope. Because think about it just in simple terms. Right now, heaven is God's space and earth It's human space. And they're separated because of sin and humanity's rebellion. Remember in Genesis 1 and 2, in the garden, Adam and Eve were with God. Where? On earth, right? But then sin caused separation. But our hope is, Christian hope is, that one day Jesus will return and reunite heaven and earth. And all the sad things on earth will be made untrue. Under King Jesus, all things will be united. This theme of being unified is huge in this letter. Heaven and earth united. God and man, brother, sister, all ethnicities and peoples. This is our hope. And this, friends, is what we're working for now. That's why work like what's happening with the family room and the foster care system is so important. And this is what is in Paul's head. Even a few verses earlier, in chapter one, verse 10, Paul says the end of everything is to bring unity to all things in heaven and earth under Christ. Therefore, what you and I work towards now really matters. We are citizens of heaven, meaning we are representatives of heaven on earth. We show what it's like now through our lives, what the rule and reign of Jesus will be like when it completely covers the earth. But for now, we represent it. And when we do works of justice and mercy and sharing Jesus and refugee care and foster care and serving the city and mentoring, when we do those kingdom works now, we're showing what life in the age to come will look like and we're building into something that will endure and last in eternity. So Paul is, with this in mind, 
Paul is praying for them, and in some way for you as well, that they would know their true hope. And then he prays, related to that hope, is his inheritance. Now notice this, verse 18, look down in the Bible in your uh, Bible really quickly at this verse. The next verse, it says, that you may know the riches of his inheritance in his holy people. Paul wants them to know his inheritance. Now this is interesting because when I first read this, I thought of the inheritance as what I get because earlier in this chapter, Paul talks about that. He talks about the inheritance, what we as believers have in God, all these riches in Christ Jesus. But if you look closely at the words here, you'll notice he's talking about his inheritance, the Father's inheritance. He prays that you and I would have this awareness, our minds would be opened up to understand Father God's inheritance. Well, what is it? He says the inheritance is his holy people. That's us, the saints, the holy ones. In other words, in Christ, God has claimed us for himself. You are his greatest prize. Now think about that for a minute. God has created and sustains the universe. He has power over planets and galaxies. Most of you have already seen on social media or on the NASA site these uh, pictures that just came out this week from this crazy telescope. Let me just read what you're looking at. This is from the, the, uh, the NASA explanation, the caption below this image. This landscape of mountains and valleys speckled with glittering stars is actually the edge of a nearby, that's relative, young star-forming region called NGC 3324 in the Carina Nebula captured in infrared light by NASA's new James Webb Space Telescope. This image reveals for the first time previously invisible areas of star birth. That is star birth. It goes on. It's called the Cosmic Cliffs, and Webb's seemingly three-dimensional picture looks like craggy mountains and a moon, on a moonlit evening. In reality, it's the edge of a giant gaseous cavity, and the tallest peaks in this image are about seven light years high. I didn't even know light years was a measurement for distance like that. Like, that's what you're looking at there. And yet, with all of this at God's disposal, he chooses people in Christ as his prized possession. And this is a theme all throughout the Bible. You know, in the Hebrew scriptures, Israel is called God's chosen possession. In Psalm 149, the psalmist says, the Lord delights in his people, humans made in the image of God, the apex of creation, and God will do anything for them. That's why in Hebrews 12, 12, and as the author of Hebrews is commenting on Jesus, they're able to say, for the joy set before him, Jesus, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Now, the question about that verse is, what was the joy? What was it that Christ was willing, why was he willing to endure the hardship and the pain, the agony and suffering of the cross? What was the joy on the other side? It was you, Jews and Gentiles, people from every tribe and nation. 
You know, um, we had a wedding in here yesterday for our youth pastor, Jaron, and his new wife, Grace. It was amazing. I saw you guys there, the youth group. Of course, first people on the dance floor, the youth group, tearing it up. Jaron's taught you well. And uh, it was a beautiful celebration. We even have had in our own family a recent engagement. Jack and Jill got engaged. On, yeah, we can cheer for that. They certainly are. On a cliffside at the coast. Now, here's the thing. In that moment that uh, Jack had carefully planned out to present Jillian with the diamond ring, if he had fumbled the ring and it fell down the cliff about 200 yards, I have no doubt that like Spider-Man, he would climb down, find the ring, scale back up to present it to Jillian and seal the deal. Young love will do anything, am I right? But think about this, every romance, every engagement and wedding all points to this cosmic reality. Christ is a, bride, is a groom passionate for his bride and his bride is his people, the church. Jesus would do anything to be with you. Paul, as he's thinking about this later in this very letter, he says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be reunited and be united to his wife. Paul is quoting this, thinking about Christ and his bride, the church. Jesus has actually done this. He left his father in heaven, endured suffering and death on earth to be reunited with you. And there's a wedding feast to come when Jesus returns where we will celebrate this with the choicest of meats and the finest of wines. God is crazy about you. And he's invested every resource of heaven in you. Every blessing in Christ is available for you. That's why at the end of this prayer, in verse 22, he's able to say, and God placed all things under his feet. So God the Father put all things under the feet of Jesus and appointed him to be head over, the, over everything for the church. Think about that. Everything that the Father has has been given to Jesus for us. You have everything you need to grow in Christ-like maturity, to win over temptation or trial. Your future is his concern. And he's provided you with everything you need in Christ. God, the Father, is investing everything in the church for its success. Sexual brokenness, lives damaged by addiction. And by the way, I'm talking about us. These are our stories. Marriages on the verge of collapse. God has given us today all that we need to be healed. And he's given it to his people, the church. He's ensuring your success and our success. But the question is, how? How do I access that? How do I access these resources for healing and restoration? How do I live into this identity of being a holy person, of being his inheritance? How do I access all that Christ has given us? And the answer is in this next line, we do it by his power. The last thing Paul prays for, for the church in Ephesus is an understanding of this specific resource given to us, 
Verse 19, he says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Paul prays that they would know their power in Christ. And notice that it's for us, meaning to our advantage. Paul wants us to know the extent of the power that's accessible to us. He uses multiple power words to make his point clear. Daryl Johnson in his great commentary on the book of, or the letter of Ephesians says it this way. The apostle heaps up power words to convey the surpassing greatness in accordance with the working of the strength of his might. Each term he uses can be translated power so that you may know the surpassing greatness of his power, which is according to the power of the power of the power. Paul wants us to know the power that exceeds all bounds, excessive, enormous power exercised towards us who believe. Paul prays that God would open their eyes to see how much power is available to them, to their advantage. And he goes on to show and illustrate where this power has been at work. Are you ready? Are you ready? It's the power that was fueling Christ's life. It's the power that raised Christ from the dead. It's the power that seated Christ on the throne above all other powers in the universe. It is the power that put all things in subjection under Christ's feet. It's the power that made Christ as head over the church. It's the power that overcomes death and it is a power that is above all cosmic forces, over all God or goddesses. No spirit, no demon, no curse or stronghold can overcome Christ and his power. And remember, the people of Ephesus are obsessed with spiritual power. So he's speaking directly to them. They were fascinated by the occult and spiritual forces, but Paul wants them to know that Jesus' rule and his authority and reign is far above all other powers. So we're gonna tell a story in just a minute about Christ's power overcoming darkness but first, let me end with this. How can we live out all that Paul is gonna get into in this letter? How can we, listen to some of these, live a life worthy of your calling in Christ, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love, keep the unity of the spirit, stop lying and speak only in truth. Do not let sin in your anger. Do not sin in your anger, stop stealing. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving other. That is only in chapter four. How can we live up to that? By his power. Power to humbly love one another, to prefer one another above yourself. Power to be united as male, female, rich, poor, black, white. Power to become people of peace and not anger. Power to be people of love, not of fear and anxiety. And it's power to forgive one another as you have been forgiven in Christ. So how do we access this power? How do we practically tap into this? It's not power that you can buy like in a car. It's not power that you can work on like sports or academics. It's not even like a trait or talent that some are born with and some aren't. This power like your salvation is a free gift of God. You do nothing to earn it, you receive it. Do you want this power? 
And maybe if you haven't experienced this power, it's because you still need to experience the free gift of salvation in Jesus. If you've been coming and you've been listening, and maybe even today is your first time here, you're not even sure why you're here, but if you have yet to trust in Jesus with your life, to receive this free gift of eternal life, maybe today is your day. So how can we live a life worthy of the calling? How can we live as God's holy people It's by receiving the power in the spirit. If you are in Christ by faith, you have the spirit in you. Unlimited power. And as Paul said earlier, this power is far above all other powers that exist in heaven or on earth. So I'm gonna invite Tammy Comer to come up and tell her story of how she's experienced this power in her life. Would you welcome Tammy up here? Microphone. Hello. Sorry about that. I actually did that last time, too, at the nine. I keep forgetting this thing. Um, Okay, before we start, I just want to pray. Holy Spirit, would you come in this space right now? We commit this space to you in Jesus' name. And right now I just speak to any principality or power or demonic spirit, any spirit in rebellion against Jesus. Right now I command you in Jesus' name to be silent. Be silent, don't speak, don't distract. In Jesus' name be silent and Holy Spirit come. Do all that you want to do in and through my story for your kingdom's sake and for your people's good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As many of you may know, I struggled with chronic illness for about 15 years, the last five of which were much more acute. At its worst, we thought I was dying. This forced me to do a lot of the inner work and around grief and acceptance. I knew that I would probably die young and that there was a high likelihood that I would be crippled. And the honest implications of how that would affect my family was very, very sobering. It was also during that time that on top of everything else, I was given a diagnosis of a rare neurological disorder that would primarily affect my face. It had a 50, percent chance of progressing in my lifetime and I already had facial spasms daily from it but should it progress all the muscles in my face would begin to spasm severely and continuously crippling my face making it difficult to eat to speak or to kiss my husband This was literally like living with my very worst nightmare. It was in this season that some of our dear friends and mentors, Chris and Meryl Vinand, they've come here, so you probably have, some of you will know who I'm talking about, had come to visit us. And I remember Chris asking me um, if I knew of any generational curses on on my family. And at the time, John Mark and I had no paradigm really for that in real life. 
Um, I told him I didn't know of anything. Uh, we knew it was like a thing that you read about in the scriptures and, and stuff, but we just didn't have a paradigm for that in like Portland, Oregon, you know? So anyway, um, but I told him I didn't know of any curses, but I did have a great grandmother who was really into tarot cards and palm reading um, when I was a kid. But other than that, I didn't really have any paradigm for that. I didn't know of anything. And even, even with that, we just kind of held that idea of a generational curse. I mean, what do you do with that? How do you check for that? You know, ancestry.com, check. <laughs> generational curses. Oh, je definitely. So we were just like, didn't know, you know. So um, fast forward a couple years, my brother had been doing some research on our family genealogy and came across a very bizarre story about a generational curse. So this is that story as it came to us. My great-grandmother lived in Mexico City and she had fallen in love with a diplomat from Cuba. They had gotten together and lived together and had had eight children together, one of which was my grandmother. Now at this time, they started having a bunch of sickness and I think one of their kids may have died. And so she, same great-grandmother who was into tarot cards and palm reading, went to a fortune teller and she said, tell me why we are sick and dying. And this woman said, it's because there is a curse on your bloodline and it's from the man you live with's wife. Now at this time, she had no idea that he was married. And he had, in Cuba, left his wife in a mental institution and come and live together with my great-grandmother and started a new family. So this woman in Cuba had hired either a shaman or a witch to put a blood curse on my grandmother, my great-grandmother, and the fortune teller actually told her the curse is this, that the firstborn girl down through your family line in every family will be cursed with terrible illness or early death. Now, what was crazy about this was that John Mark and I had done, re you know, we, of course we knew that there was a lot of sickness and death on my dad's side of the family and the women. It was very obvious. What we hadn't put together was that it was actually the firstborn girl in every single family. It was four generations strong and it never skipped a generation. So my great-grandmother, her firstborn daughter was my grandmother who died in her 60s and was sick for 20 years. Years. Her firstborn daughter was um, the sickest woman I've ever met, had probably over a hundred surgeries and is crippled. Her firstborn daughter died in a car accident at 16. My brother's firstborn daughter was crippled her whole life and then she died at eight. I'm the firstborn daughter of my dad. And there was one cousin it hadn't hit that the day before we broke the curse over me, I got the phone call. She's younger than me, three kids, and she was just diagnosed with stage three or four throat cancer. So this came to us and we were like, oh my gosh, this is so weird. What do you do with this? So I immediately, um, at the advice of my husband, called Gary Bashirs, who is a theology professor at Western, for those of you who don't know, and he's very like just solid and not weird. And so I was like, <laughs> what do I do with this? How do you do, how do you do it? And like, 
you know, what, is this even a real thing? I feel like I'm in a Disney movie. Like, and so he said, it's an absolutely a real thing and you need to break it off. So he connected us with a man who was friends with him who was actually retired and had history with deliverance ministry and breaking off generational curses. And um, this man was so kind. He came out of retirement to, do, to meet John Mark and I for this very specific reason of breaking this curse and actually had been following along with the Bridgetown story um, during the pandemic. So he was actually already like, you know, just kind of knew and knew who John Mark was. And it was just like this gift to feel like, oh my gosh, this guy is, he, God's already like, I don't know, at work. So um, that, let me see. It turned out that when he came, the whole week beforehand, I kept feeling like the Holy Spirit was saying, you have to be holy. This was like the thing that kept coming to my mind the whole week before as I was preparing for this prayer meeting with him. I didn't really know what I was walking into. I just kept hearing, you have to be holy. So together with our families and our community, we fasted and prayed for a couple of days in preparation, and we went to meet him. Now, as soon as he called me to come into the room, my face began spasming the worst it ever had. One of my eyes would literally barely open. And when I came into the room, John Mark was like, oh my gosh, what is happening with you? And I'm like, I have no idea, let's just pray. And so um, we sat down and he led us through this prayer. It was very um, legal sounding. It was almost like breaking a contract. He um, led it, us through it and as soon as he said, by the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, I break off this generational curse in Jesus' name, and I repeated it, my whole face went completely calm. It went totally still. And something, I know this sounds weird, but it's just true. Something, I felt something physically come like out off my head and out of it. It was like I could think really clear. It was almost like I had been living in a cloud. And that was one of the main things that was such a, um, a grief for a lot of years because I'm married to a very intelligent man and I could many times not even follow him in conversation. That was such a sad thing. And it was like all of a sudden I could think clear. And I remember John Mark said, what happened? Like, what just happened? That was crazy. And I was like, I have no idea, but you know, something clearly. That was October 14th of 2020. And since then, my life has been radically changed. I have been totally, yes. I have been totally and undeniably healed. My healing was both immediate and progressive. Immediately, my spasms and neurological symptoms stopped. But over the next year and a half, I experienced God restore my body and person in ways I didn't even know were possible. The funny thing was that it never had even crossed my mind that there would be physical healing as a result of breaking off this curse. That wasn't even, we were just doing it because it just seemed like you don't want to curse on you, so like, let's break it off. <laughs> but the, but the, 
result was that I actually was completely restored to total health. Since that day, the mantra of my life has literally been, thank you, thank you, thank you, Jesus. So, if I could just end with this, and please hear me. If you want the power of God at work in you and through you, be holy. Take your sin seriously. It wasn't my sin that I carried the repercussions of. It was my great-grandmother's sin that I carried that was literally killing me. We, by the power of Jesus, broke off that curse that was passed down to me as an inheritance. I inherited it. But in every deliverance along with every other deliverance situation I have ever been a part of, and there's been a few, holiness is an essential part of breaking off anything demonic. Our actions carry both good and bad inheritances with them that we pass on to our children and to their children. May the story of Bridgetown Church be that here, the inheritance of the enemy is broken off, but that the inheritance coming down from Jesus to replace that inheritance of freedom, of life, and of wholeness carried through holiness blesses the next generation in addition to those around us because the kingdom of God has come near. And that is what happened, you guys. It's like the kingdom of God came in my body and when this, the demonic was broken off and his kingdom came, healing life, healing in relationships, all the things, the kingdom of God came near and, and my life was radically altered. One of my new favorite verses, and I think it's like one of my life verses now, is this one, and I just wanna leave you with this verse. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, drive out demons. Freely you have received, now freely give. May this be the story that we carry in our bodies. May God's kingdom come in us and through us for his glory and for the people around you and for your own good. In Jesus' name.